Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. At the Intercooler, we're proud to have JBR Capital on board as a podcast sponsor. They're a great fit for us because like the Intercooler, they're geared up around the car enthusiast. JBR Capital is the UK's only independent finance lender dedicated solely to high-end vehicle finance. That's all the company does. It means JBR Capital knows the car marketplace inside out and therefore is properly geared up to tailor finance quotes around the individual. There's no one-size-fits-all approach with JBR. In 2022, the company expects to surpass a billion pounds of lending in only its eighth year. The company can finance new cars, classic cars, sports cars, supercars, hypercars, any car, in fact, with a value greater than £25,000. The company's motto is fund your passion. And let's face it, without car finance, how many of us would really be able to afford to fund our passion for cars. So get in touch with JBR Capital before buying your next car. You'll find contact information in the description. And as ever, tell them the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 106 of the Intercooler Podcast. I'm Dan Prosser with Andrew Frankel. Andrew, we've got a a two-part episode this week. We do. Um, we're splitting it in two. The first part, we're going to be talking about our sort of fantasy but budget resto mods. I'll explain that in a moment. Um, and the second part is an interview with a chap called Darren Seelig. He is the founder of JBR Capital. And we're going to see if we can sort of demystify car finance a little bit. Um, that's coming up later on. So to begin with, yeah, we're talking budget resto mods. So these are the resto mods that we would love to do but we're trying to yeah. root them in the real world a little bit, aren't we? Because um, often resto mods are just fantastically expensive, well beyond our reach. So we're going to daydream a little bit about the resto mods that we'd like to see that might be comparatively affordable. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, we, because we're journalists, because, you know, we don't tend to spend our own money on, largely because we don't have any, um, but on, you know, on, on expensive recreational cars. 
Um, you know, we don't really, I think, probably focus enough on just the sheer cost of these resto mods. I mean, you can go and buy, you know, something absolutely amazing like an Eagle E type or, um, you know, GTO Engineering 250 short wheelbase or, or something like that. But these cars cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. Even that um, amazing new Austin Healey resto mod that we've got on the Instagram site um, at the moment, you know, it's a. 1953, 45, um, you know, Austin Healey. Um, but by the time you've taxed it and got it on the road in the UK, it's not far off a half million pound car. Um, yeah, and that's great if you've got, you know, you know, if, if, if you're an extremely wealthy person, um, with a fleet of amazing vehicles and you just want, um, you know, something like that because it fills a gap in your collection that maybe you haven't got. But, you know, that's not most people, is it? Um, and I think that we, you know, we increasingly are interested in resto mods because we can see what they can offer. You know, the, all that old school fun, all that accessible fun, because you're not going at, you know, hypercar speeds. Um, you know, when even actually, you know, not even hypercars, but just conventional modern fast cars. I mean, something like a you know, Porsche 911 is such a fast car that to actually deploy it to the full on a public road, well, you know, rare, the occasions which you could do that are few and far between. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so, so the idea is that we, you and I would just, you know, just think of what we would do, give yourself a budget, all in budget of, I don't know, 100 grand, which is still a lot of money, but a fraction of what you pay for most resting mods, um, and just sort of, you know, have a sort of bit of a fantasy about what we create. I mean, I know what I'd do, um, but maybe okay. I'll, maybe you go first. Yeah, I mean, £100,000, to me, that is still just well out of reach. But in, in resto mod terms, that's a that's a small number, isn't it? Which is an outrageous yeah. thing to say, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I, do you know what? I, I have a theory, and I think I've mentioned it before on this podcast, that particularly when you can no longer buy a, a new car with a combustion engine in it, I think people are going to want to go backwards and um, look at the cars that you could buy 10, 20 years ago. Um, but they're going to want them to be fully refreshed. They want, they're going to want them to be fit and healthy um, and perhaps reliable like a brand new car. They're going to want them to look and feel more like new cars with you know updated interiors, updated comms, all that sort of stuff. So I do see a market emerging for this kind of car that we're going to be talking about, the more real-world, more realistic kind of modern resting mod. So... Yeah, perhaps we're not um, we're not missing the mark entirely with this with this theme, this topic. Um, do you want to enlighten us then? What what is your your fantasy relative? So here, here's my theory. Okay, here's my theory of how to get a I say affordable and not impossibly unaffordable resto mod. I think the first thing you need to do, I think, well, the first thing you need to do, you need to have a very clear idea on the kind of car and the kind of era and the sort of thing that you are. And for me, that's going to be a car um, which is probably like a sort of 60s, 70s car. It's going to be light. It's going to be clearly a front engine rear drive coupe um, with a wonderful handling balance, uh, great mechanical specification, and from a manufacturer that is kind of revered in the field um and and i think the way to do it on an affordable basis is to choose as your base car a car of which they made thousands and thousands and thousands um because not only does that mean they'll be cheap today it not only means that the bits will be 
um, will be reasonably plentiful. It also means there will be any number of specialists out there who can do the work that you want them to do. And all these things to come together and they create a market and that brings the prices down. And I guess the car that I would like to, what I would like to do is I'd like to create a replica, but modern Alpha GTA. And I know that's what the Alpha Holics guys do, but they charge, you know, I've not driven a, an Alpha Holics GTA. Uh, I hear amazing things of it. And I'm sure it's an absolutely incredible car, but that's not actually the kind of car that certainly for an affordable budget, um, I would want to create. What I would do is I would take a, an early 1970s GTV, which in terms of its structure and its platform and its chassis never is a GTA. I mean, they're all what they call 105 series Julia's. So, you know, it's on the same wheelbase. It's on the same platform. Um, and those, you know, you can buy one of those um, today for £25,000. It already would already come with a two litre engine in it, um, which is, you know, a bigger engine than you ever had in the GTA. And then what I would do is I, w- I would rebody it um, just using either GTA panels or just sprint GT panels. The great thing about GTA panels is that they're aluminium. And this all comes down to budget, doesn't it? But if I could reskin it in aluminium, you know, not only would that save an awful lot of weight, um, it would also give you, you know, a great deal of corrosion resistance as well. Um, I'd leave the two litre engine in there because, um, you know, GTAs have 1600 very highly strung um, twin plug heads and they're great, um, but they're not... I mean, yeah, they're designed to be race engines, and whereas the two-liter is, is is a lazier engine, and you can still get without you know without going crazy with it, um, and anybody can do this for you quite affordably. You know, 160, 170 horsepower out of it, which in a car, which by the time certainly if you put any panels in it, would weigh what, not much more than 900 kilos, and then you know, and we're still not talking about now. Obviously, you'd need to uprate the brakes you probably want to put some decent um, suspension bits on it but this is all stuff which is very well known there are endless specialists and there's all the talent you're not reinventing the wheel here you're just picking and choosing from an awful lot of stuff that has been done before Um, and then I'd actually what I'd also do is I would just get someone to do it very carefully because you know the thing to me about old cars which I even as someone who loves old cars and drives them all the time and everything else every time I get into one to go somewhere i always wonder whether it's going to get there always whatever it is and this is 911 i guess or something like that so you know i would just also make sure that you know the car had you know modern electronic ignition on it um it was properly rust proofed i just sort of go through it with a point of view of just you know you know know, proper you know radiator cooling system on it just you know all those things that tend to sideline cars or make them troublesome or expensive to own. I'd just make sure that those were taken care of too. And I think what you would end up with is a beautiful, light, powerful, reliable, massively enjoyable, classic Italian Alfa Romeo Coupe. Um, And I don't think it would actually cost anything like £100,000. Maybe that's La La Land. I think, you know, you could probably bring it in for quite a lot less than that. And you know, for me, for what I want a car like that to do, and for the fraction of the cost that you'd spend on, you know, one of these completely recreated, reimagined resto mods that we've talked about so much, um, I'd love that. I really would. It would be, it would be a classic car, conceived with the benefit of hindsight, uh, and with so much of the concern and worry about these cars removed. That's yeah. So that's what I'd do. 
That is basically the appeal of these resto mods, isn't it? It's, um, as you were talking about, the, the sort of modern reliability, the dependability that you want from a modern car squeezed into one of these very pretty 60s or 70s body shells. Um, but also you have that, you still have that throwback driving experience um, where you don't have stacks and stacks of power or loads of grip and the car is tiny, yeah. relatively speaking. Yeah. So it still feels unlike anything modern to drive. And, and, and it's, it's light. Dependable. Yeah. Yeah. And you do want, because you can, you can get... You know, th- that two-litre engine in the GTV, when it was new, had 130 horsepower. So we're talking about tickling it up to 165, 170. You're not talking about, you know, transforming it. You're talking about giving it a bit more bite, um, just making it a bit more fun. Um, and with the way these things to do, no compromise in reliability, no compromise in terms of tractability. You're just taking advantage of the last whatever it is, 50 years. Um, of advancement to basically get a just a an entirely authentic but even greater more enhanced version of what would have been available at the time you know i'm really mm. quite taken with this idea now. <laughs> i'd really really <laughs> like to go do that it's it, it's a pity isn't it that the rest of us we've seen so far are so phenomenally expensive just well yeah. beyond our reach yeah. um it's as though that's not a game that we're invited to play um but when you describe the car that you have just done, it it does feel like there should be a way of making that a reality. Um, I don't know. Perhaps we're perhaps we're being naive. Perhaps the reality actually is that it's hideously expensive just to to turn one of these cars around to modernise it. Um, but it doesn't feel like it should be. And compared to the cost of you know people talk about you know, making electric versions of, um, you know, classic cars. It's, you know, it's nothing compared to the cost of doing that. And the, and the, other, the other strange thing is that right at the bottom end of the market, um, you know, classic cars are being restored left, right and centre. You know, you know, I have an old um, 1960s Fiat 500 and you see so many of those that have been restored and are selling for strong money. And they're just restored to, to as they were. And yet there is this kind of, middle ground and it's an enormous middle ground isn't it between those and the you know the million pound resto mods um where there just doesn't seem to and i know you can go to guys like henry pym and eagle and you know he will sell you a low drag gt and charge you you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds for it but also you know if you have an e-type and you just want i don't know if i speak gearbox in a proper brake system he'll do that too so you know there, there, there are people you can go to who will um who will make better what you already have um, but as a sort of car which you can just get and as a project and create yourself, there just doesn't seem to be very much in that middle ground. And I just wonder whether that's not an opportunity um, and whether it's something we're going to see a lot more of in, in years to come. I, I suspect it will. Yeah, So, I, and as I've already said, I think in years to come, we'll see more of, um, sort of 80s and 90s cars being resto-modded. Um, and, you know, for for my suggestion for this, this topic um i've been thinking about the cars that my generation will have sort of aspired to own or um or coveted when we were kids you know when we were teenagers um and there are there are so many of them but the one that really stuck in my mind is uh, a peugeot (laughs) a peugeot 306 maxi um so that's the rally car that's the rally car that the F2 kit car that um, they were running around, buzzing around in the 90s. And on tarmac stages, very twisty tarmac stages, these kit cars could sometimes be faster than the world rally cars. Um, And 
I just think that something inspired by a 306 Maxi, but for the road, um, would be fantastic. And the trouble is, you know, if, if we... If I'm getting anywhere near the upper end of this £100,000 budget, that is an outrageous amount of money for a little French hatchback. But so how, you, how, do you, at, how, do you, how do you make it? So what do you start? You, you start, you go and buy yourself a 306 what, GL or something. So I've, I, think, I think you'd start with a, a GTI because a GTI 6, you probably want that six-speed gearbox. I mean, I'd love to have a sequential shift in it, but for the road, that's probably just a bit too hardcore, isn't it? And then yeah. you'd need one of these fantastic 300 horsepower um na little four-cylinder engines that um that they they stick in these maxis they've got individual throttle bodies and they howl scream um there's a one company called peepo um it makes 306 horsepower revs to 9700 um (laughs) and and they are insanely expensive i think they're 30 grand plus um, and they probably don't have a great deal of life in them. You know, if it's revving to almost 10, it's making yeah. 300 horsepower from two litres. That's a highly stressed engine, isn't it? It probably needs it is. a rebuild quite often. Um, so maybe you can peel that back a little bit. I don't know, 270 horsepower, put a bit of life into it. Maybe bring it down to 9,000. I don't know if someone would do that, but that would be plenty I for mean, the road. I mean, eight and a half would be all right, wouldn't it? Yeah, eight and a half would do. <laughs> 250 horsepower, that would do. Um and you, I think I'd want a stiffer shell. I don't particularly want a cage in my car for the road. Uh, maybe a half cage would help. But perhaps you could seam weld the, the chassis or put some additional material in there. just to Because often when you drive these slightly older cars, it's the way the thing rattles and fidgets around you that makes them feel like older cars. Um, and I'd want... I'd want to retrim, refit the interior. That is an insanely expensive thing to do. So you'd have to keep your eye on that um, so you don't go overboard I'd want good seats bucket seats maybe harnesses and I'd want a really nice motorsport a dished maybe a Momo steering wheel Alcantara trim just to give that sort of tarmac rally car feel when you're sat inside the thing Um, it would sit low like a maxi but you'd have to have the wheels going up into the arches so there would be a decent amount of wheel travel and I'd want lovely plush rally dampers something like an XTC damper so that the even though there's only you know a relatively small amount of wheel travel as much as you can get the ride should still be supple i don't want it to be a, a proper you know jaw rattler and i'd want a nice tight diff uprated brakes good tires um and then i think you've got this little pocket rocket this little rocket ship um that would be really fun on the road uh, I don't know. I've never driven any. I've never driven a three hundred six Maxi or any of those. That would era, you? That kind would you strip car. it out completely? Would you sort of? Would you get rid of all the, uh, you know, the the stereo and the back seat and you know anything else that it might have? Would you? Would you just go sort of hardcore, or would you keep it a bit more user friendly? So I don't know, friends or family or whatever can go in it. And if you had to do a distance in it, it wouldn't be utter purgatory. I don't want it to be like a racing car off the road or even a rally car off the road. I want it to be usable. Um, rear seats might go um, because, well, you could put a, a brace across the back then and you can have fixed bucket seats that, you know, that don't um, allow access to the back. But I'd, I'd still want it to have, you know, I want to connect my phone. I want to listen to something on a decent or reasonable stereo. Um, I want it to have AC so it's not unbearable in the summer. I just... I don't like these sort of masochistic cars that make you suffer um, for 
only marginal gain. So no, it wouldn't be totally raw. Um, yeah, I think that'd be a fun car. Definitely, definitely. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I mean, not just the the eras. Um, obviously, you and I come from, um, well, sadly in my case, from different eras. Um, but the configuration, you know, I've gone for a sort of a very sort of traditional sort of front engine rear drive car, yeah. and you've gone for a, you know, a sort of hot hatchback, and it's yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, there are no right answers here, are there? No. No. Do you know what? We should throw this out to the Instagram audience or to the, the general TI audience. Um, but we'll put a post up on Instagram and just send us your suggestions. It's just fun to sort of ponder this sort of thing. But bear in mind that we're trying to keep it relatively sensible. We've got this hundred grand cap on it. Um, so yeah, yeah, get in touch. Or, 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 maybe, or maybe somebody would like to, you know, bring the price way down and just think, you know, so... Yeah. You've got a your donor vehicle is a you know is a is a tired fifteen hundred quid MX five. Um, you chucked, mm. I don't know, ten grand at that. You know, yeah. or you know, you gave yourself a complete budget of fifteen grand. You could you could you could probably create something quite amazing out of that, couldn't you? Um, yeah, well, Rocket, very... Rocketeer have done that. The yeah. Rocketeer is fantastic fun to drive. I guess the problem with these things are, you know. Are you ever going to get your money back? You know, I could create my mm. amazing, you know, GTA replica and spend, well, even if, let's say I only spent 70 grand on it. Is that car worth £70,000? Probably not, if I'm honest. So <laughs> yeah. you either don't do it or you do it for the right reasons, which is that you're going to enjoy it and you're probably never going to sell it. Um, and if you do, you know, you take the hit and think, well, that was worth it for all that amazing amount of fun and enjoyment i had out of it that's just the cost of mm. you know that amount of fun which you know probably the amount of fun you could have it over the period of time you'd be enjoying it it'll probably work out you know being you know great value for money even so well let's see what happens with the rest of our market see if it evolves in the way that we hope and suspect it will um mm. Yeah, good. Okay, well, let's let's leave rest of mods there, and um, we'll we'll have this conversation with Darren Seelig, founder of JBR Capital, and see if we can learn a little thing or two um, about car finance. Yeah, and, and and on that front, you know, obviously everybody knows that JBR um, sponsors this podcast, and we're very grateful for them to doing that. But also, you know, we genuinely think that an awful lot of people listening to this, you know, car finance is a very real thing in their lives, um, and Darren does have an interesting take on it um, and we wouldn't be having him on if we didn't think he had something um, interesting and revealing to say about you know about the world he's in so hopefully you'll find it interesting hope you'll find it informative um, but I'm sure one way or the other you'll let us know. Welcome Darren Seelig founder of JBR Capital to the Intercooler podcast it's good to have you with us um, so Darren we we want to use this as an opportunity really to see if we can demystify car finance and you know, reveal some of the ins and outs because it's it's not necessarily the most straightforward thing. But before we get stuck into it, just tell us a little bit about your background um, and about JBR Capital. Well, first of all, uh, Andrew and Dan, thank you so much for having me on the Intercooler. So um, I'm really excited to be here. And yes, um, car finance demystified. Well, there's a topic um, close to <laughs> my heart because, <laughs> well, not as long, long as we have on the podcast. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, car finance is often seen as being overly complicated and it really doesn't need to, but it really is quite straightforward. And um, you're asking me about JBR Capital and the background and why we set it up. And really for me, 
uh, JBR has been a 20-year journey from when I first started in, in motor finance, all back at the dark ages of 2002, when it was very, very embryonic, and it was the era of the birth of the car finance broker. And there really wasn't many of us around. And I kind of fell into it uh, almost by accident when I started a, a finance brokerage called London Asset Finance back in the day with a friend. And we started funding all kinds of general assets, including um, cars and luxury cars. And we were based in the south uh, uh, south of London and just came across lots of high net worth individuals and high earning individuals buying cars. And it became very, very apparent to me very quickly that finance companies just didn't seem to understand um, the customer, the high net worth customer buying a luxury uh, a luxury or supercar. So they didn't understand the customer, they didn't understand the profile, and they didn't really understand the asset class either. So, you know, generally speaking, finance was always um, more consumer orientated. And you have the giant consumer lenders out there, like the captives, um, that fund for manufacturers, Alfira, Santander, etc., who do an absolutely fantastic job for the automotive industry and buyers of cars. Um, but their average loan size is around £10,000. Uh, our average loan size of our typical customer is around eighty to £90,000. And that is quite a significant difference. Um, and when you're running automated processes, as uh, the consumer lenders do, um, a lot of customers just don't get understood by a, a credit score or a school card or the machinery. And uh, often computers... Um, they just don't have enough information to make a decision. So the, the decision is no. Um, so you tend to, back in, back in the day, seen higher value cars, luxury cars, supercars being funded by asset finance houses, which are part of banks. Um, and yet they understood the customer a little bit better. They run manual holistic processes. So rather than the computer making decision, a human being will look at, customer's overall profile, their bank statements, asset liability statements, um, look at you know what we call story credits, and it has been a little what I call wrinkles in the past in someone's history, and is that separate and identifiable and explainable? And forward-looking, is it all rosy, and should we lend £200,000 to this individual? Uh, the difficulty with asset finance houses is they have no particular knowledge of specialism in high-value cars. So it's a truck, trailer, lorry, crane, and a Lamborghini Aventador SVJ Roadster, one of however many it is. But we don't really understand that. How do we value it? What's it worth today? What's it worth in four years' time? What would we do to dispose of it if, unfortunately, it did get returned to us if someone didn't pay and, and there was a default? So you've got um, very erratic decisions. There was no consistency. It became very, very frustrating seeing all these wonderful deals um, being declined and turned away. And I think I even got quoted by one underwriter around mid-2000 saying, well, if, it, if it's not for David Beckham, we're not interested. Um, and it was a McLaren SLR. And uh, unfortunately, it, it, re- it wasn't for David Beckham. So it was a bit uh, at the swanee there. So um, I, I, I started with an aspiration and a dream to try and transform the um, supercar finance um, landscape and try to bring to the market a finance company that had a better understanding of customers and what they wanted, what drove them, 
what their passion was um, and, you know, and what inspired them to buy these cars um, and try and make finance just a bit easier. So we understand their profile and um, we understand um, the cars that they're buying. Um, understand the cars that they're buying uh, more, more from a kind of uh, numbers perspective on valuations, you know, what they value today, what they value in the future. We know the cars, we love the cars. We, we certainly don't know the intricate uh, engineering aspects and performance aspects like, uh, like you, you guys do. Um, and we leave that very much, much to you to understand. So don't start asking me very technical <laughs> questions. <laughs> that could be a- well, we've got that covered off. You've got that covered yeah. off. But, um, but Darren, can I could just jump in? I mean, I, th- I think yes, one of course. point which is quite important to make is it's not all about um you know Aventador SVJs I mean you know it's you, not you actually um you you address quite you know, by the supercar market a supercar could be someone trying to finance I don't know a new Porsche Cayman or or something like that you know perfectly what people yeah. might regard as you know perfectly accessible um yeah, exactly. of, you know fast sports car without yeah. being a sort of That's you right. know hundreds of thousand pound hypercar uh correct so uh when we launched JBL Capital in um, January 2015, which was the current iteration of a, of a long, long road that I've walked um, and uh, brought it to market. It was very important to us to try and make a centerpiece to um, the enthusiast community and help fund cars of passion. Um, and, you know, that may be aspirational um, at the lower end of the scale of the cars that you've been talking about, or it may be at the very, very high end of the hypercar. Now, we, we lend from £25,000 and upwards, so we're kind of like at uh, a typical consumer lender's average loan size will be about £10,000. So we're just a little bit higher than that. So we are on the, um, the luxury end of the consumer market, you know, because it's still £25,000 and is fairly lowish amount compared to supercars but it goes all the way up to, to around a million pounds so yeah as you say we're trying to support enthusiasts all the way from their journey of, of buying into cars at the low level all the way through uh, their journey over time to hire so jbr capital is um you, you guys sponsor the intercooler podcast and thank you for doing so it's great to have you with us and we oh, it's our pleasure we're really enjoying it good well thank you and uh, so at the start of each episode we talk a little bit about jbr and we say that JBR Capital is actually the UK's only independent finance lender dedicated solely to um, performance cars and luxury cars. And so what is the significance of that? I guess it just means that if that's all you do and that makes you unique, you're actually geared up around the enthusiast, the individual, and you just understand the marketplace um, better than any, anybody else. Is that fair? That's what we'd like to think. Yeah. Uh, um, I hope it, in reality we do do that. And, you know, we, we, we are a finance company and, you know, money is a little bit boring, um, but there's a necessary aspect of all our lives. But it's what we enable customers to do with that money and bring their passion to life. And, yes, we do portray ourselves to be the only um, independent finance company dedicated to the high-end vehicle finance market. And I do think that statement um, is true. There isn't anybody else out there wearing a lender hat that is just solely focused on this. There are, uh, you know, large large scale brokers that are doing something similar. You know, they do introduce business to us and and a variety of other lenders. But from the lending landscape, we are the only people really focused on this. And I think that's really important. 
It's, it's, it's the way that we can focus on our customers. We can give them personal service. We like to engage with our customers and our introducers on, on an individual basis. We like to go to events with them. We like to hear about their cars. We like to get enthusiastic with them. And we like to hear the passion that comes through from them. And finance companies tend not to do that. Finance companies tend to be quite uh, faceless and one or two steps removed from the customer. It's not usual to get this type of customer engagement directly from um, a lender. And I think that is what is um, a, a unique selling point for JBR. Yeah. You always got people coming to you who are looking to buy new cars from manufacturers, all of whom, you know, have big businesses and finance themselves. Um, yes. What is your offer to those people? Why do they come to you rather than just taking out the finance offer with the car company they're buying the car from? Okay, so I think it's important to say at this point, the majority of our business, about 90% of cars that we finance are used cars or mm-hmm. nearly new cars, not necessarily new cars, although we do fund new cars. The new car market is um, served very well by captive lenders who will support their residuals because they're the manufacturer and they want to sure. uh, you know, support, support their own um, brands and buy them back. And we'll often give subsidized rates to encourage customers into those cars. However, the minute it's left the forecourt or it's been pre-registered back in the, in the olden days when that happened, um, you know, that then falls into our territory. Captive lenders are less focused on used cars because the funding they're using in captive finance is to support the sale of the vehicles and keep the factory gates open and the, the wheels of industry going. So in the used car market, um, captives are fairly pricey. Uh, the residuals um, aren't particularly strong and the overall finance uh, offering therefore doesn't become uh, very attractive. And, you know, whether you're buying a car at the volume market at the lower end and you're borrowing £10,000 or you're borrowing a million pounds, the key driver still doesn't change. The the key driver and measure of someone's affordability in their own head is how much money do I have out of my monthly disposable income to splash on a car? And so it's it's not necessarily the base cost or the deposit or um, the interest rate or, or, or the balloon, in fact, that's driving it. It's, what is, it's, it's a sum of each individual parts of those and what is driving the monthly payment. So, you know, it, other lenders may not understand, you know, the high value cars like we do. And maybe their residuals are a bit more conservative to what we may put on it. And I'm not trying to say that we're going gung-ho and being an irresponsible lender in putting people into cars so they've got a guaranteed future shortfall is what I kind of refer to none of that sort we're always looking to place what we call um, realistic um, future values and balloons on vehicles Um, so given that this is all JBR Capital does Darren your business doesn't work unless you have an intuitive understanding of the marketplace which cars are hot which are not which are moving which are going up in value which are coming down um, so I guess you have staff there whose job it is just to develop that intuitive understanding of the marketplace. So let's talk a little bit about it. I mean, how are things at the moment? You're coming off the, a record month in March. Um, so things appear to be fairly buoyant out there. Yeah, I'm a bit tired and stressed. <laughs> <laughs> but all for good reasons. So yeah, yeah um, quarter one um, for JBR, uh, we 
uh, paid out fifty-eight million pounds worth of loans. So you know, if there was no seasonality, that would be about two hundred and forty million of loans. We're, we're aiming for around two hundred and eighty-five for this year. And in previous years, we've done a, around one hundred and fifty million. So we're almost doubling up. And wow. uh, so, uh, uh, but the demand is certainly there, and it's, it's there's a lot of discussion right now about what is actually happening out there in the market. Is it still hot? Or is it not? And are the headwinds coming towards us? Um, and, and will it dampen things down? And it's a fascinating topic. Or, you know, as you know, and it's well documented out there, and every Tom, Tom, Dick, and Darren has been talking about it. Um, it has been for the last 18 months an insatiable market with huge demand and limited supply. And, um, I think in 20 years, I don't think I've ever seen it this busy or this mad um, ever. And, you know, and that was for, you know, a whole host of reasons, you know, starting with the pandemic and the lockdown and pent up demand. And it kind of just went ballistic and carried on um, throughout the last 18 uh, months and exacerbated by, you know, supply issues of new cars, you know, wiring looms coming from Ukraine and the well-documented semiconductor shortage and the neon supply yeah. and, and et cetera, and on and on, on we can go. Um, but there are definitely uh, headwinds heading towards the alternative market uh, and, and, and life in general with, you know, inflation now reported running at 7%, energy costs rising, petrol, I think I paid 175 the other day, almost had a heart attack. Uh, almost made me buy an electric vehicle, almost, <laughs> and uh, uh, but not quite. Um, and I think, I think, uh, you know, and wage wage inflation not not going up at seven percent—that's for sure. Um, I think in the luxury end of the market, um, it's still going to be pretty buoyant for the next twelve months, despite those headwinds, and um, mainly because of the the shortage of supply. Ago, and I've been to lots of uh, dealers and people in the industry in the last last few weeks and trying to gauge what's going on and they're still selling an awful lot of cars um, and it's still very buoyant so I think at the, at the luxury end it's not going to be as touched in the same way as the consumer market albeit you just you just never know you just never know it seems to be holding up and it's mainly because of the supply shortages in new cars so if that yeah. turned quicker than expected then i think it would cool quicker um but let's hope not um so one last one from me uh i know that recently you've been driving the everati 964 i think you're partnered with everati aren't you um that's the that's the electric 964 now um i'm just i'm curious about electric cars generally and i mean do you are you seeing lots of people coming to you looking for finance on evs and are they a complication for you just because they're new and they're a little bit unknown um no I, you know it's not really a complication i think it's just different in you know with our customers are they moving to electric vehicles uh simple answer is yes they are like everyone else uh, it's just our customers out buying Taycans and Teslas, e-trons, and some of the Mercedes EQVs, and whatever yeah. they're called. Um, and we don't really seem to fund much else because it's not really in our sweet spot or, or price bracket. Um, 
and the reaction is is relatively mixed some of them are raving about it i've had customers that bought um tycans and got rid of it within two months because they got range anxiety and it just didn't work for them in terms of the charging networks and um they just realized it wasn't as developed enough yet for their own circumstances um but we are funding an awful lot of those cars i think last month it represented some like 15 percent of all cars that we that we finance so there's an awful lot of them awful lot of them and you know there's lots of good taxable benefits to do that Mm. um so it doesn't really pose a problem for us it's just it's just different you know it's just a luxury car whether Mm. it's got uh, an engine in the front or a battery underneath um we're not too too concerned you know it has a value today has a future value tomorrow and it has a monthly payment so you know we're quite agnostic to it um you know uh, you mentioned the Everati. So that's that's an interesting one, you know, and there's a number of other players out there as well converting um, classic cars and historic cars into kind of electric vehicles and trying to make them, you know, more sustainable and usable for the future. Um, and, it, you know, I think it's quite cool and fashionable. We've got a finance partnership with Everati. I mean, that is, um, you know, an, an incredible feat. I mean, I certainly enjoyed it. Like, like I said, I'm not great on the technicalities. Uh, but I went on the airfield and I put my foot down and I would lie up at 130 miles an hour before I knew it. I was absolutely <laughs> flying. Uh, so it was an awful lot of, um, an awful lot of fun. Um, you know, that I think, you know, that is not a car that you would just go and buy as your one-off car with, you know, the only car you have. I think you'd have to have several other cars in your, in your fleet. Um, you know, as a business, you know, we're quite keen, um, to support the move to you know a more sustainable future you know we've launched you know a, a program carbon neutral britain and you know we're now uh paying for our customers first year or five thousand miles you know use of the petrol engine cars an offsetting program uh you know in, in, a, in a move to support the industry and i think that is industry leading i'm not sure there's anybody else out there in the luxury supercar market you know customers in, in that way can I just, I mean, I know we're, we're, we're running quite short on time now. So, I mean, just very quickly, do you no, see um, demand being maintained right at the high end for sort of hyper cars and that sort of thing? We, we read a lot about, you know, customers thinking, what's the point of spending a million pounds on a car with, you know, so much power and never be able to use it? And why don't I just go and buy a resto mod or something like that, which I can uh, I can use every day and enjoy. Do, do you see the heat going out of the, out of the top end or, do, or, or, or are things still? No, I there? think. I think I think it's actually gone into the complete reverse, and actually the million pounds um, hypercar market, you know, things like Claren P1s, 918s, Lafroy is actually falling in values, um, falling back about 20%, and those values have, have got back to where they were and gone beyond. Enzo's used to be at sub 2 million, they're now at 2.4, 2.5 million. Um, so that end of the market is actually currently doing extremely well, and um, those cars are being bought up now for collections because um, this is now the dying breed. So what had been in decline is actually gone into reverse. Um, that, that's what we're seeing. Blimey. Well, I, I better give you a call about a finance quote on my Enzo then. Um, I mean, <laughs> clearly we could... It is my favourite. The Enzo is my favourite car because I found there's something like 
17 of them in the mid 2000s wow. and seven individual unique i've got the chassis numbers just to check uh that's if you actually believe there were only 399 of them that's no <laughs> conspiracy story out there there, there are websites out there where there's apparently all the chassis numbers of enzos and it seems to be more than 399 but i don't know how yeah. the truth is but yeah i've got a passion and interest in that car because i've financed so many of them in the 2000s but uh yeah. hopefully one day i can own one that would be nice <laughs> Ah, same. Well, there we go. I mean, clearly we could talk about car finance forever. Um, it's an interesting world. So thank you for shedding a little bit of light on it, Darren. Um, thank you to everybody for listening. And um, and please rate and review the podcast. That's really important. Please do that. Um, we'll be back again next week. Darren, thank you for your time. Um, and thank you again for sponsoring the Intercooler podcast. Thank you so Anytime. much. Thank you for having me. Cheers, Darren. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.